0: Okay, runners imagine this you are at the start line of a marathon you're standing there waiting anticipating amongst all the other runners for the race to start however you're a little different than everybody else why because you have a 55 pound household appliance strapped to your back chew on that for a few minutes
1: Welcome to the Feel Good Running Podcast, where our goal is to keep you motivated, inspired, and energized. As a runner, or perhaps you are looking for the right motivation to become one, you've definitely found the right place. We share inspirational stories from real runners, motivating running-related information, and much more to help you feel good about your running. And now your host and a longtime feel-good runner himself, Jim Lynch.
0: Well, hello to all the runners out there, our brand new runners, our brand new listeners. Welcome. I am Jim Lynch, and this is my podcast, Feel Good Running, which is for the everyday runner. I want to thank you very much for listening. I very much appreciate it. Lots of podcasts out there, lots of running podcasts out there. You chose mine. I hope you enjoy it. I hope to entertain you. I hope to motivate you and also inspire you to continue to get out there and run, run, run. So you probably had a few minutes to think about my opening. Well, it's true. Ben Blows is my guest today. We did an interview a while back and he ran the London Marathon with a 55-pound dryer household appliance strapped to his back. I am not kidding you. This is a true story. He's an amazing athlete, uh, but... I don't know who in the world would want to run with a 55 pound dryer on their back, but he did. And you'll hear about it in just a little bit. So how is your running going for 2019 so far? You're about, uh, let's see, this is being released on the 18th of January. So you're 18 days into the new year. I hope that you're feeling good. You're feeling healthy. You're feeling strong. And you're fighting through the winter and you're getting out there and getting your running in. I know that we all get excited when there's a brand new year. We start from scratch to build up our mileage. We try to figure out what we're going to do for the year, what races we're going to do if you're running for races or if you're just running out there for fun. Whatever it is you plan on doing, I just really hope you're sticking with it. So run smart in 2019 and injury free and just enjoy every single run and always feel good about it. That's what I always say. Feel good about your running. You know, even a bad run is a good run because you accomplished something that day and you did something for yourself. Yeah, you may not be satisfied with it, but you know what? That is all part of running because however many bad days you have, you have two or three times as many good days. Just remember that when you're out there. Don't get down on yourself if you have a bad run. Just get out there the next day or the day after and do it again because you're going to have a great run, many great runs and appreciate every single one of them. So what do I want to talk about today? Well, it is winter and I know that Many of you out there are dealing with the elements, the snow, the rain, the sleet, the puddles, you know, you name it. I kind of remember that. I live on Maui, so I'm wearing in January for running what you would wear in July. Now, I'm not doing that to, well, let's say, yes, yes, I am. I am doing that to rub it in because I live here and I'm very fortunate. It's not going to last forever. I know that. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to rub it in. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I feel for you out there because there were so many years that I ran in the snow and in the rain and in the sleet and and was running and ran through a puddle and froze. And all my facial hair would freeze and icicles and stuff like that would kind of dangle off of it. And my hands would just be ready to fall off. They were so cold and my feet were You know, freezing. I remember that. I don't want to remember that, but I do remember that. So I feel for you. I really do. You'll get through it. You really will. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So they say. Anyways, all right. Now that I completely depressed you uh, because I live here on Maui and you're dealing with winter, I want to talk about something that I absolutely hate, and that's the treadmill. I am not a fan of the treadmill. I do not like the treadmill. There's nothing good I find about the treadmill and I call it the dreadmill. The reason is, is that I don't want to be a hamster on a wheel. Even when I lived in the freezing cold, if there was any possible way that I could avoid the dreadmill, I would. I would always be outside. I wanted to be outside. The dreadmill, in my opinion, is pure running hell. All right, now you may disagree with me, and I know people that just love the dreadmill. I'm not one of them, all right? You know, one of the most common things that I always hear from non-runners about running is that running is boring. Well, if you run on a dreadmill, you're going to find out what boring is all about. All right? So anyways, why am I on this tangent? Well, because I found an article looking through the internet, wasting time. And it's written by a woman by the name of Jody Braverman uh, from Livestrong.com. That's where it appeared. And the title of it is Nine Ways to Make Running on a Treadmill Way More Fun. And the way is all in capital letters. Now, Jody Braverman, she must have been challenged to create this article. And I can picture her being in a meeting and someone said, hey, Jody, we all know dreadmills are boring. Come up with nine ways to make running on the dreadmill more exciting. And Jody probably thought to herself, oh, man, really? I thought I was going to get the assignment to interview Des Linden, the 2018 Boston Marathon winner. What happened to my life? Well, I'm suspecting, and this is my own opinion, that Jody even knew this would be a stretch by her opening paragraph. And it, it says, the monotony of a treadmill workout just makes running more torturous. And even those who love to run abhor being stuck inside on the treadmill. See, she uses that word too. But you shouldn't skip your workout just because it's boring or it's raining outside. Or in the case of many people in the mainland, it's snowing. These nine tips will breathe new life into your treadmill workouts. And you never know. You might even start to look forward to them. Well, my interpretation, and this is just my own opinion, is that she was trying to express to us or warn us subconsciously. Well, it's, it's like, all right, we all know running on a treadmill sucks, but here is my stab, my attempt to try to somehow, some way make it more fun. All right, so I'm going to go through these nine ways really quick, and uh, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but seriously, I, I think many of you might. So the first one was find a fun app. Well, I'm personally not familiar with apps that much, if at all. I probably will as I get into more episodes of Feel Good Running, but maybe you millennials or Gen Z runners are tuned in. Me, I'm apparently tuned out. The second is run virtually. Now, I understand the concept, but apparently there's, there's uh, apps such as Run Social that connect to dreadmills via Bluetooth. And you can run with people live around the world on different courses. Really? Um, why? I, I just, I don't get that. Number three, catch up with friends. All right, so now you're going to run on a dreadmill by talking to friends or family on your phone. Oh, my God. Number four, Netflix and run. So you can't get enough Netflix at home. You got to binge at home. And now you're going to binge watch while running on the treadmill. What? Number five is build a motivational video playlist. Now, in this article, what it says is to make a motivational playlist of your favorite scenes from movies, TV and YouTube that were motivational to you. Now, let me tell you something. You could get in 40 miles, at least 40 miles outside and the time it would take you to download and edit that list. And I doubt there's a lot of you listening out there that know how to edit anyway. So you'd have to learn how to edit and that would be another 100 million hours of time that you could spend outside running as opposed to being on the dreadmill. Number six is get creative. I suggest you go to my show notes at feelgoodrunning.com to read this section. Talk about digging deep to write this part. Number seven, give your brain a workout. Hmm, I kind of like this because it says, get your brain busy by listening to podcasts. Of course, I endorse this and I know what podcast you should listen to, this one. Enough said on that. Number eight is get lost in the music. Now, I agree with this because the only running with headphones that I personally endorse is on the treadmill. And I have pretty deep thoughts about this. And you can hear my thoughts on headphones in the next episode. Number nine, do intervals or pyramids. Now, I would say out of all of these, number nine makes the most sense. This is actually something you could do if you have no other alternative to run outside to make sense to me where the treadmill would provide an actual purpose and give you a phenomenal workout if you, again, don't have an alternative to run outside. Anyways, those are the nine ways. Now, Jody, if you are listening to this, I really give you credit for writing this article. And I'm sure you're a great writer. I'm just having some fun here. And to those out there that love the dreadmill and this is your jam, please don't take offense. Seriously, if that gets you out running, I'm all for it. But for the rest of us, go outside, breathe some fresh air, and enjoy the scenery. All right, enough of that. Enough of me blabbing. Let's get off the dreadmill and go to this episode's motivational and inspirational news.
1: Searching anywhere and everywhere. Here is this episode's feel-good-running news.
0: Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder that primarily affects the lungs, causing breathing issues, which there is no known cure. Usually, cystic fibrosis and running are not a match. Well, 24-year-old Michael Waltrip, not the race car driver, but a Ph.D. student at George Mason University, was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis shortly after he was born. But the symptoms of cystic fibrosis did not show up until a few years ago when he was having issues falling asleep due to breathing difficulties but he was running regularly. Once he started getting treatment, he would continue to train and run 60 miles plus a week and would undergo nebulizer treatment to treat buildup of mucus. Well, on July 29th of 2018, Michael ran the San Francisco Marathon in a crushing time of two hours, 43 minutes and 24 seconds, which easily qualified him to run this year's Boston Marathon. That is roughly a pace of six minutes and 14 seconds a mile. Amazing, Michael is quoted in a recent Runner's World article saying, Just to be able to run with cystic fibrosis is kind of crazy and awesome. But like anything, you just have to focus on what's in front of you today and breathe the best you can. Incredible accomplishments like Michael's is what a feel-good runner is all about. Good luck in the Boston Marathon, Michael. I'm confident you will slay the course. Alex Fatman just completed his 100th marathon on January 1st of this year at the Metal Sawing Technology Texas Marathon and Half Marathon. Say that a bunch of times. That's in Kingwood, Texas, and he did it in a time of four hours and 35 minutes and seven seconds. This event is put on by Steve and Paula Boone, who head up the 50-state marathon club. These are good people, by the way, and if you see them, tell them I said hi. Well, Kalix is from Ozark, Missouri, and he got interested in running at four years old, inspired by his dad, who raised him since he was seven months old. His dad would take him to the college track at Mizzou, and he would run laps. He did his first 5K when he was just five years old, and when he turned 10 years old, he was going to do his first 10K, but he skipped it and just went out and ran the half marathon. Oh yeah, Calix. He went out and did another 51 half marathons that year. Yes, at 10 years old. Now he has 100 marathons under his belt. His dad, Ken, is extremely proud of him and said, it just shows that Calix can really do anything he sticks his mind to, whether he decides to stick with marathons or go on to other things. Now he would like to do triathlons. Anything Calix is determined to do, he will most definitely do it. So why is Calix's accomplishment so special? Others have run 100 marathons. Heck, even the dummy host of this podcast has done 100 marathons. Well, Calix is only 17 years old, one of the youngest people in the world to run 100 marathons. Calix said, I've always wanted to hold some sort of record for running, but I wasn't that fast to set one of those records for speed. So by doing this, that is something I could do. How about that? Kind of makes you want to get off the couch, doesn't it? Anyways, Calix, congratulations. You are most definitely a rock star, and I gotta believe you have a tremendous amount of fans out there. And finally, you probably have heard that Adrian Haslett, who lost her leg in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings, becoming an inspirational figure, was recently hit by a car a few weeks ago on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, just a few blocks of the site of the bombing. She has gone through a few surgeries where plates and screws were placed and inserted into her left shoulder and elbow. Adrienne was not a runner prior to, but a spectator when she lost part of her leg during the bombings. She was determined to become a runner and her resilience, determination and pure focus to overcome this tragedy, while she ultimately enhanced her life, I've and inspired thousands in the most positive way. Just three years later, with a new running blade for her leg, she crossed the finish line of the 2016 Boston Marathon. She had been training for this year's Boston Marathon prior to being hit by the vehicle. At this time, Adrian does not know if she will be cleared to run this year's marathon, but according to her Instagram site, her head is staying in the game. She wrote, I've been through the worst. I can get through this throbbing. Pain, this deep anger, this hurdle. Over the past year, Adrian has been running with Boston's Heartbreak Hill Running Company and has become a faster runner and having a lot of fun. See, as I always say, a running group will definitely enhance your life. Remember that. Well, we all wish Adrian a speedy recovery and hope in time to reach her goal of running this year's Boston Marathon. I personally think you will come back even stronger, Adrian. You definitely are an inspiration to all of us runners. The best to you
1: now it's time to welcome this episode's very special running guest.
0: Well, runners, this episode's guest is in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yes, Ben Blows is from Stetchworth, a village between Newmarket and Cambridge in the UK. An ordinary guy, married with two sons and is a roofer and is very well known in his village. He was a contestant on the BBC reality endurance show, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week. Yes, Ben is in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the fastest person to run a marathon with a household appliance strapped to his back. Well, first of all, let's get real here. It's hard enough to run a marathon, let alone having a tumble dryer strapped to your back. But Ben ran the 2017 London Marathon with a 55-pound tumble dryer strapped to his back Or if you're listening in the UK, that'd be 25 kilos. And he did it in a time of five hours, 58 minutes and 37 seconds to hold the world record. Think about that. Well, there's just so much more to Ben's story. He is just an outstanding person, a great athlete, a true gentleman, a great bloke. I think that's what you call him over there, blokes. Anyways, enjoy my talk with a very amazing ordinary guy. An inspiring bloke, Ben Blows. Well, hello, I am on the line today for this wonderful interview with a gentleman by the name of Ben Blows. He's out of Gaisley Newmarket, which in my I've never been over into the UK. But from what I can tell, you're northeast of London, about 119 kilometers and seventy four miles uh from London. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that is correct.
0: Man oh man. See, the internet is amazing. You are also a husband to uh wife your wife Louise, and you have uh two sons, Joel and Spencer, correct? Correct. Awesome. All right, so Ben, first of all, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. This is Feel Good Running. I'm based out of Maui, Hawaii, but uh you're we're we're far apart but we're connected right now. Thank you. So I looked online and I couldn't believe what I saw. I saw a picture of a gentleman, which is you, running the London Marathon on April 23rd of 2017. And instead of me talking, why don't you tell me what you did on that day?
2: So, yeah, last time I ran the London Marathon... I ran it carrying a tumble dryer on my back, a twenty five kilo tumble dryer, which was pretty much had straps attached and then those straps were attached to me.
0: I saw the picture of the tumble dryer and, and so for anybody who wonders that's listening to this that can't convert kilometers, that's fifty five pounds on your back. And this is, pounds, yeah. and this is a full tumble dryer that you ran the full marathon in. That's correct, yep. And you did uh the marathon in how long?
2: Well, it was. I was setting out to break a Guinness record, and the Guinness had set it at six hours. I had to get under six hours, and I ran. I think it's five fifty-eight forty something in the end. So just, just got it.
0: So first of all, why did you choose a tumble dryer? Is it because somebody else, from what I understand in the Guinness Book of World Records, somebody already set something? Some sort of goal in there or record for the fastest race time carrying a household appliance.
2: That's great. I think Guinness had set it a couple of years previously and a couple of uh, guys had tried it but hadn't got under the six hours. When I looked at the record, I thought that that's possibly achievable. I didn't realize that it would be that quite that close. I was, was hoping for more sort of five 5.30ish, five but as you well know in running, things don't always go to plan.
0: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. I have enough trouble carrying a spy belt with some gels in it, and here you are going with a tumble dryer on your back. So did you just say, this is a challenge that I want to do, and then you started
2: uh, training? How it came about, it's, um, I filmed a TV program for the BBC called Ultimate Hell Week, uh, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week, and I'd filmed, we filmed that in South Africa. It's quite a long selection process. There's about 5,000 people applied for this TV program, and there was only 22 people going to go through to the actual filming. And I kept getting through each stage and each stage, and then I got to a selection weekend and I got through that. And then finally, they said to me, Yeah, you've made it, you're on the plane, you're, you're going to be filming this TV show, which happened to be in April of 2016. Um, went out filmed this T V show, you know, I had quite high hopes for myself without being big headed, you know, I didn't I didn't find the, the actual physical side of things that tough. A few others struggled, you know, and people were leaving and being eliminated all the time. And I got down to the last I think it was eight or nine people. Um which was like week five of six, or programme five of six or programme four of six, sorry, I should have gotten to programme five, but I just had a bit of a I had a bit of a weak moment I lost my temper and Um, told basically told one of the instructors where he could go and that was it I was out of the program so I I flew home then from South Africa and on the Sunday I I think I got home on the Friday and on the Sunday was the London Marathon so I'm sat at home watching this and it also coincided with the day that the final was being filmed in South Africa so I'm sort of sitting at home thinking I should still be there you know I should be I should still be there I lost I lost my call and here I am, I'm back in England and I should be out there filming the final. So I'm watching the London Marathon and also I've, I've run the London Marathon every year for the last 10 years and this is the first year for 10 years I, I'm not running it. So you can imagine my sort of state of mind, I'm sitting there, I, I should be running the London Marathon, I should also be in South Africa filming the final of this TV show and they interviewed a, a guy at the start who was carrying a tumble dryer on his back and it sort of... Got my got my attention and they said so. How much does this tumble dry weigh? And he said, well, it has to weigh 25 kilos throughout. Of course, as soon as he said that, we'd been filming for the last ten days in South Africa carrying a 25 kilo uh, box sack backpack. So I sort of knew, you know, how it is to run with 25 kilos. So I took his number down off the telly and I tracked him and I trade, you know, and I followed him all the way around. He said he had to go under six hours and he just fell short. I mean, you know, it was only just a tiny bit over, a few minutes over, but he just fell short. And literally from that sort of moment, I went out, I put my weight vest on and thought, you know, I'm going to have a go at that. And then really, that's how it came about.
0: And then you also, um, after you graduated from the weight belt, it said uh, somewhere that you um, had a, a fridge on your back to train did, a little yes.
2: bit. yes. I started out with a fridge because... I don't know really. It's just you sort of hear these people running with fridges all the time. So I started out with a fridge, but it just wasn't it wasn't secure enough. Um, you know, it's all right for a mile or two, but once you started trying to get any distance, it just it just wasn't sturdy enough. And then someone suggested a tumble dryer, and I went to my local scrapyard and had a look around and found a real sort of sturdy old one. And yeah, that's that's how a fridge became a tumble dryer.
0: Now, I've been running for several years, probably since the uh, early 80s, and not once in my entire life did I ever hear of anybody running with a fridge or a tumble dryer. So that must be oh, something really? over in your side yes, of the neck woods.
2: Quite a, big, <laughs> quite a big thing over in uh, the UK. Yeah, it's quite a lot of people who do it. Well, not a lot. There's probably about three or four, but you sort of hear of people. There's there's a guy up north called uh, Tony Tony the Fridge. There's another guy... Or feel the tumble, you know. There's there's these these guys who are sort of quite legendary in 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 the small circles of running, carrying household appliance.
0: That is absolutely amazing. And you know, yes. um, one thing I want to tell everybody that's listening is that Ben is an amazing athlete because he's done, and I believe this is this is what I read. You've done 30 marathons, but your normal marathon time is somewhere right around two hours and 50 minutes to three hours and 10 minutes. You kind of, they all fall right into that period. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, we're talking about somebody who knows what he's doing out there. So you add 55 pounds on and you still do that under six hours. That's absolutely amazing. First of all, that you did that. And second of all that, you know, you're, you're a quality athlete. Now, You mentioned, I think I saw a video of you and you were saying you had a really rough second half of that marathon that year with the the tumble dryer on your back. Tell me what you went through mentally to get through the end and what you were thinking about, because I know your body was probably starting to fall apart.
2: It was, um, you know, I've done what I've done in a lot of marathons with or without a tumble dryer and that's set off too fast. You know, I'm always... Constantly, constantly when I race when I train, I, I sort of really don't pay any any attention to the to the watch at all. I record it just so I know but if I'm feeling good I'll run a bit faster. If I'm if I'm not, if I'm feeling a bit tired and work and everything else, I'll just run. And it really doesn't bother me. But when I race, I get switched on beforehand and you know it's it's basically until I finish, it means sort of everything to me to get to get to the finish line as fast as I possibly can. And I should have set out really sort of like a 5.45 pace but I didn't I went out five, 5.15 pace first half sort of came through came by and it went pretty quickly and I was getting massive amount of support from the people on the on the London Marathon and I, and I really enjoyed it and then I got to halfway and I met my wife and my friends um quickly took the because I was allowed to take it off but I wasn't allowed to travel forward and you, you know if it comes off let's go on the floor exactly where it where you where you take it off and then you put it back on so I got to halfway I took it off changed my t-shirt changed my socks changed my shoes for the second half and I don't know I mean it's it's a tough part of the London Marathon just after halfway you, you know because you're going around the Docklands area and from about 13 to 18 19 it's a bit quieter the crowds are a bit quieter and you're sort of doing a few loops out and backs and stuff and it gets a bit gets a bit tough and it's you know I've seen it before when I'm running personally or Without a tumble dryer, I felt it there. And I've also seen it from the other way where I felt amazing at that point and seeing other people really suffering. So I'd really, you yeah, know, it was just getting so heavy and I just couldn't work out why it was so heavy. But, I mean, you know, at that point I'd sort of run 15, 17, 20 miles with this thing on my back. And I there was a point where I was working out my splits and I was like, right, I need to do 15-minute miles. And I'll, and I'll get I'll get under the six hours still, and, but I couldn't. I was I, was, I had my Garmin on and I was sixteen, seventeen minute miles, which was basically walking, and it wasn't even fast walking. It was just trudging along, you know. But I, I just remember getting to about nineteen miles and working it out and thinking, you know, I can. This is still on because I thought I'd lost it, you know. So obviously, once you think you've lost the record, it's just a case of this sucks, but I'm going to finish it, whatever. And I'd done some maths. Managed. I put some music on as well, actually, that, that, and that changed things for me. And I, I don't often. I never ever race with music on, but I took it anyway, just in case. And I put some music on, and I just put it on shuffle. And this one song came on, and it's a song I like, and it's. Um, and I just listened to it on repeat for about about four or five times, and it just sort of blotted out everything. And you know, got me got a bit of adrenaline flowing through me, which took away some of the pain that was in my shoulders and in my feet. And then you know, all of a sudden, I got to twenty. 21 miles, and I thought, um, "This is on I can still do this." And by the time I got to 24 miles, I knew I'd got it. And of course, you know, the elation that comes with that sort of takes away the pain of, of what you're going through. And all of a sudden, bang! You know, there's the finish line. I've got it.
0: I've been, I've been there. I know how you feel on that. But I can't even yeah. imagine what you would feel, you know, when you were carrying 55 pounds on your back. Two things: uh, you obviously for that particular. Uh, race you had to keep track of the time because you needed to break the six hours so you had your garment on that day. Yep. And what song was it you that really motivated you? I'm curious.
2: It was a song called Everybody's On the Run by Noel Gallagher. I doubt you've heard a bit but Noel Gallagher was uh he was the part of a group called Oasis. Quite quite big in England. Oh right. Back They're big big noise. over here
0: too. No big I know. over there,
2: yeah. And now they've sort of split up, and you know, this is his one of his songs from his solo albums. And it's just, um, yeah, it's just, you know, obviously it's called cool. Everybody's on the Run as well. And it's a very sort of uplifting song. And it just, I don't know, it just seemed like it was sort of like fate that that song came on on Shuffle out of a potential sort of 5,000 songs on my phone. It could have been, and I just kept, like I said, I just kept listening to them repeating. I could see the crowd screaming at me, but I couldn't hear them because I had my music on so loud. It was almost always like, well, like, you like know, yourself, you sort of zone out and you? you can't, you're only, you can only hear what's sort of internal and you, everything else is just sort of blocked out. Although you can still see it all, it's all sort of blocked out. But it's, it's like blocked. a dream
0: away. It is like a dream. Exactly. Yeah. You're listening and to I'm your watching. music and you see people moving and smiling and clapping, but you can't hear them. I, I, I don't list, I don't run with music either. I like the no. natural sounds on the outside, but. Um, I have, have done that a few times. Now, the, the show, Feel Good Running, that I do, the podcast, our whole focus is on the everyday runner. We, we work yes. and, and people that have done, uh, really, really good things, uh, in running and have given back. Now, I know you, um, you did this, uh, for a charity, which was called Racing Welfare. You want to tell me a little bit about that charity that you did it for?
2: Yeah, well, where I live is is quite a famous sort of the town of Newmarket is the home of horse racing in in England or in the UK. So we have like the Jockey Club, have its, has its headquarters here, and everything everything else goes with that. So all the you know we have two race courses here, we have all the gallops where you any morning of the week you can go out and see the racehorses training. So it's a very very horsey town. And when I was looking. I had a place anyway because I had a good for age place from the year before. So I had a place. I didn't have to do it for charity. And I thought, you know, what, what, who can I, which charity can I do it for? And I sort of, they're all, every single charity you could pick, you know, they are all, they all have their, they're all, they're all worthy. That's for sure. And but I just thought, you know, I'm just going to do it for something local because I'm I'm from this town. Everybody knows me from this town, um, you know, for running and everything else. So, I thought, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a bit back. And although I've never worked in horse racing personally, I know plenty of people who have. Um, I trained at a CrossFit gym in, in Newmarket as well. And one of the ladies there who comes to the six am class, she, she worked for the charity. You know, and I remember lying on the floor, sort of stretching out, but talking to her about it one day. And I just thought, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it for them. So that's why it was, and they, you know, the response from it was, it was just went crazy. Really, I think we raised close to 10,000 pounds in the end, which yeah. I was hoping to, I was hoping to get 1,500 and it just, it just went, it just went silly. It just What's amazing is
0: uh, I read it was 9,000 pounds, but, um, you know, in, in, in us dollars, that's, that's over $12,000 that you raised. and. Yeah. And, and that is absolutely amazing. And it's amazing how things catch on and you get press and this and that. But um, yeah. what it also shows is that uh, you weren't just out there doing it for self-glory. You were out there doing it for a cause, too. And I'm sure that that helped you along the route when you were thinking about all the people that supported you and your charity. So I think that is absolutely awesome. And I commend you for for that. Now, um, now, in, in your your personal life, you are a uh, self-employed uh, roofing contractor, correct?
2: That's correct, yeah.
0: Yeah, they, they said in there that if you look up on a roof, you might see you somewhere um, <laughs> in that area. Now, besides this, which has been a really remarkable thing that you did, you're also an altar runner, and you were a boxing coach for four years. Um, I found that to be quite interesting. Tell me yeah, about that.
2: Well- Well, I used to box myself um, from the age of about 18 to, to, I don't know, 22, 23, and that's how I got into running, because my boxing coach used to to make us run, but we'd only have to do like three miles, two or three times a week, and I used to to detest it, I used to absolutely hate it, It the worst part for me of, of boxing training was the running, but when I stopped boxing, I sort of continued the running, because, you know, the benefits of running, keeping weight down... How it makes you feel and everything else. So that's really how I got into running. But my my boxing coach was a man called John Humphreys, and he's a he was a great guy, really, really inspirational. And unfortunately, he 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 died really young. I think he was in his forties. He, he got struck down with cancer, and it was a really terrible, sad time. for everyone concerned, with his family and everything else. And but one of the last things he said to me was, he said, "Stick a stick a set of pads on, do a bit of coaching." And he said put a bit back into the sport, he said you'll never you never know what, and I vividly remember him saying to me, you never know where it could lead to. You know, and so that's what I did. So I started coaching at the local boxing club in Newmarket and I was there four or five years maybe, coaching there as as an understudy to the head coach. And then Cambridge University, which Cambridge is a town which is 20 miles from where we live, Cambridge University were advertising for a new head coach for their boxing so I applied for it, didn't really think I'd get it because, you know, I wasn't that experienced, I'd only had four or five years. Went over for a couple of interviews and, yeah, lo and behold, I, I got given a position as head coach of Cambridge University Boxing Club. Wow. So I was at Cambridge I was at Cambridge University Boxing Club coaching there for four seasons as head coach, um, first year. It's it's quite a different format for Cambridge University Boxing because you don't, the guys you're coaching they're all graduates and they're some of the, the smartest people in the country and they're, they're, they're there to obviously study and get their degrees and, and launch their careers. But if they want to box, they can come in. And no, none of them really have any background in boxing, but they come in in October and we have sort of six months to turn them into something that resembles a boxer. And Then we, then we, we fight against Oxford in the, the annual varsity match. And this varsity match is one of the oldest... Boxing competitions in the world—it's like 106 year. So that's basically what all you do is you prepare these, you prepare the, the, the guys and girls as well now, because there's the girls for it as well. But you prepare them for the varsity match. So we now we had our first, my first varsity match was in Oxford, um, and we went to Oxford and we and we beat them. Um, I think we beat them five four. So you have to win, obviously, five fights out of the nine to win the varsity. So we won the varsity in my first season. So that was pretty amazing um i had done it four years as head coach it sort of coincided with my wife becoming pregnant with our first child and i you know like i say, it's 20 miles away from my house and i had to get into the center of cambridge sort of three or four times a week and it was just eating up all my time i wasn't getting paid for it as a volunteer you do it it's an amateur sports you do it as a volunteer and it just became a bit too much really so i stepped back and one of the other coaches one of my assistant coaches was then promoted to head coach and I became his assistant and helped him through a transitional period, but putting less hours in for a couple of seasons. And now, you know, he's still there and- I, I don't have nothing to do it at all apart from my, I, I still go to all the, all the boxing matches and a few alumni dinners and stuff like that but so yeah it's, it was a great period of my life I loved every second of it well you gave four
0: hours or four years of your life and uh I can understand that with you know your your normal job and then doing that and having to drive and then your you know your wife expecting with your first child that's that you got to sometimes sit back and say hey I got to cut something out here and you exactly. know, given four so years that's a long time and that's really admirable that you you gave that much time and you know probably changed people's lives i would assume
2: yeah and met some fantastic people whilst you know the, the guys you know I'm, I'm i'm a roofer from i'm a roofer from newmarket and i'm meeting some of the sort of cleverest brains in the country and these people are going to go on to become sort of the prime ministers and politicians and everything else but you know they're t- they're not that different to me really or you know although they may have been brought up completely different and come from a different background you know guys are guys when guys get together on a minibus going away somewhere they talk about the same sort of things that guys do and it's just it's just like i say a fantastic time i met some some great people some inspirational people and funny enough i also met another boxing coach who went by the name of lee of lee steggles um and he was on the first series of the program, the program that I, I eventually went on, Ultimate Hell Week. Mm-hmm. So looking, looking back on it, if I hadn't have met, if I hadn't have taken the Cambridge, or hadn't got the Cambridge job, then I wouldn't have met Lee. And if I hadn't have met Lee, then I probably wouldn't have applied to go on Hell Week. Had I, if I hadn't applied to go on Hell Week, then I probably wouldn't have been sat at home watching the marathon when the, when the man was there with the tumble drive in back, So I'd have probably just been running it myself and trying to get a fast time. So it's, you know, sort you know, and if I hadn't have done that, then I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have my picture in the Guinness Book of Records at the moment. And, you know, you can almost all drive this back to when my boxing coach, John Humphrey, said to me, stick a set of pads on, you never know where it could lead to, you know. And what it led to was me coaching at the local club, me then coaching at Cambridge, me meeting Lee, me going on the TV programme, me leaving the TV programme. When I did, you know, as upset as I was about that at the time, you know, if I hadn't done it, then I wouldn't have come back and and, and done the tumble dryer and never think that's gone with it. So it's almost, you know, you can trace everything back to him saying, you "Don't you could never know where it leads to."
0: Everything happens for a reason, and it yeah. sounds like that happened for a reason. By the way, on the on the Hell Week uh, program, are, are those available online? Is there a place that somebody can watch that? Is it on YouTube or any of those?
2: there's there's clips of it on youtube clips of bbc there. put these clips of it you can find the whole episodes um online as well but i'm not quite sure how legit that is but they are on there um but the bbc have obviously owned the rights to it so there's certain clips on there but um i had a massive big beard at the time um, i saw gosh.
0: that yeah absolutely yeah,
2: so, <laughs> so i'm not i'm not a hard to spot on there
0: yeah anybody that goes on and, and looks online they'll see the picture with the beard because that's in there yeah i'll I'll research it and see if I can find something and if I find some link to it i'll I'll put it up on the show notes too so yeah. um, you are preparing yourself for um, a major challenge um, it sounds reading about this it's probably the biggest challenge you've ever done in your life. Um, and this is going to happen in 2019, from what I understand. And uh, you have a website up. It's called Blows Rose, and it's called uh, Row the Atlantic. Um, tell me a little bit about about this challenge and how you came about, and what you plan to to do for this whole thing.
2: Yes, yeah, so. As you say, December next year, 2019, I'm planning to row across the Atlantic Ocean. I'd like to do it solo, leaving the Canary Islands, just off the coast of Africa, in December and arriving in Antigua, hopefully around 50, 60 days later, um, in January, February time, 2020. That is the plan.
0: Now, when I looked at it, it's uh, roughly in Miles, it's roughly 3,000 miles.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) 3,000 miles,
0: yeah. 3,000 miles. And I looked on uh, Google Maps, and uh, between where you start uh, to where you finish, there's nothing but water. Absolutely
2: nothing at all. Normally,
0: right, and normally it's a team of two to four, and there is a lot of challenges in that 3,000 miles. Um, Some sounds like some mental challenges, and then you've got some uh, challenges with the waters, such as sharks and some other strange things. So how are you preparing for all this?
2: It's it's really difficult to prepare for it because, you know, unless someone physically drops you in the middle of the ocean and says, stay here for a week or for a few days, you know, there's no way you can know how you're going to feel once you get to that point. Because, you know, at some point in that race, I'm going to be 1,500 miles from land behind me, and I'm going to be 1,500 miles from land ahead of me. I'm going to have about six miles of sea beneath me. And realistically, the closest person to me will be on the uh, space station as it goes over, sort of 280 miles up in the in the Scott, up in the, above me. So, you know, you are literally in a desert of sea. There's nobody out there. There's nothing out there. Um, but how you prepare for that, I don't know. I just... I think it's one of those things that you, you really you sort of learn as you go. Um, from what I've been told, and I've spoke to a lot of people at length about it, the hardest part is the first week, maybe two weeks, because you're going out, and usually when you go out on your boat, you you turn, you know you know you're going to turn around and go back at some point, but you you know there's no turning back once you go out, get to a certain point, and you think right if I wanted to pull out, this could be you know I I could still pull out. But you know, until you get, from what I gather, you after a couple of weeks, everything settles down. You get used to the sea, and you get used to everything, and you get used to the loneliness. Um, and you sort of get you get on with it, from what I gather. But I don't know. There's no real way you can prepare for it until you until you're there. Physically, I can make myself as fit as I can be. Um, trying to put some weight on, trying to stop running, so I like put some weight on. But I'm finding it difficult to stop running um, because obviously I'm going to lose. On a potentially like a third of your body weight as you go across. I believe
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have mm-hmm. any type of support out there if you needed any supplies or anything like that? Or is it pretty much you take off and you better have enough uh, to keep you going?
2: Yeah, basically. Um, I cannot, once I'm in the boat, I cannot take anything off of anyone. There is a, su- a support vessel that sort of, tracks along the Atlantic route because it's a race and there'll be sort of up to 30 other boats doing it um there is a support vessel but if you need to be rescued that support vessel more often than not just coordinates your rescue because but it would take them three or four days to get you get to you so they'll coordinate and they'll speak to other sort of local ships in the area and or cargo ships and you know they'll they'll make sure as much as they can so that someone will come and help you but when it comes terms of food you have to take 90 days' worth of food. Um, that all has to be inspected at dockside and counted and, and signed off. So there's no, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it if you haven't got enough food. Your water, you, you turn seawater into into drinking water using a desalinator machine, which runs off of solar power. And a lot, of, a lot of people's races end because their wa- water machine goes. You know, if you run out of food. You could probably survive, I don't know, a few weeks. But if you run out of water out there, then you're going to be, you're in trouble pretty, pretty much straight away. So, I have to make sure I know exactly how my desalinator works inside and out, and you know, take it to, take it. Because if there's a problem with it, and you, you know, it's in the middle of the night and it's pitch black, and you're in a storm, and you're in a boat that's potentially flipping upside down and round and round and everything else, you've got to be able to, to be able to sort of keep your mind and, and fix what needs fixing.
0: How big is your boat?
2: it's about be, I haven't got my boat yet'd be about uh, four meters by a meter and a half something like that they're not they're not huge.
0: It has to be big enough for you to keep your supplies in though correct
2: Big enough to keep your supplies it's also got a, a cabin an airtight cabin so you get in this cabin when it, when the, when the storms come which they, which you know they always do. And you decided you don't want to be out there, and you get in your cabin and you shut the hatch, and you're airtight. And as long as that hatch stays shut, you know the boat can roll and it can go be submerged and everything else. As long as the, the hatch stays stays shut, then you're you're safe, relatively safe.
0: And is there uh, what is the percentage of uh, teams or individuals that start out that absolutely that make it?
2: Um, I don't know the exact percentage wise, but. I mean, I, I followed the race this year, sort of, I actually I flew out to the race start and I watched a bit of the race start and got to meet a few of the crews and then came home and I there's a, there's an app called the Yellow Brick and you can you can see all the boats on end, well, they don't actually move, it's sort of quite fascinating to watch this app and, you know, they just slowly, slowly move across the Atlantic, but I think they lost maybe four or five teams fairly early on, you know, and, some difficult conditions, getting away, getting away from uh, Lagomera and people stuck in local weather systems. And it seemed to me that once they got sort of two, three weeks into it, then most people got to the other side. Wow! Um, it's just the starting point. I think I'm sh- I can't remember exactly how many there was, but there, there was quite a few that went down within the first couple of weeks.
0: Well, you're completely outside of the hurricane season. That's all over with exactly, at that time.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's why they do the race in December. Although apparently um, it it's 2006, there it was, it was a hurricane. It's the first one in December for 60 odd years. But yeah, so it's not impossible there's going to be a hurricane, but it's highly, highly unlikely.
0: Highly unlikely, right. And yeah. uh, is the temperature, uh, I know as you get more towards the Caribbean that it's going to be warmer, but where you're starting off from, is that, a, uh, is that warm or are you going yeah. through cooler pretty much? I mean, it's...
2: I went there, like I say, I went there in December last year, and it was to leave England in December, which we had sort of snow and ice, and to to fly south for four hours and to the Canary Islands, and it was it was beautiful. It was really warm, but it's yeah, you it just depends on how the local weather is. You can be you can be down into your trunk straight away, or you could have your sort of wet weather clothes on. But I say once you get sort of towards the Caribbean, that's when it gets stiflingly hot and course the cabin. You're trying to sleep and get stiflingly hot, so people just end up sleeping on deck, really.
0: Is is this an uh, annual event?
2: It is, yeah. It's called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Okay, yeah. The reason I heard about it comes back to Hell Week again. One of the contestants, a guy called Jamie Sparks, he'd done it, him and his friend had done it, and he sat and talked to me about it one night when we had a bit of downtime in this TV program. You know, I can remember him telling me, and I was just amazed, just thinking, Wow, how can people do that? But... All of a sudden, you sort of think about it, and, and you get your head around it, and it's, you know, once you sort of, It's the same as when, when I when I met someone who, who ran 100 miles, and he told me he'd run 100 miles in 24 hours, and just sort of... I was amazed when he told me, I thought, how is that possible? And then, you know, within probably two or three years of him telling me, I'd done the same myself, and it's... When you first hear about these and I tell people about the race, about the boat, you know, the the row that I'm doing, and people are just, what, really? How, why? Why? How can you do it? How is this... Once you personally accept it and know that you're going to do it, you know there's there's nothing. i whatever happens, I'm going to do this race, and unless barred, something goes drastically wrong, I'll finish it. You know, and I'm I'm hoping to be competitive in it as well because it is a race. And the second I start rowing, is I I would be doing anything in my power to get to the other side and get off that boat and get back to my family. Well,
0: I think you have the uh, the mental fortitude to plow through this. Um, it's a lot of miles, a lot more than a hundred. Uh, but, but I think, you know, just like anything, whether you're running a 5k, a marathon, an ultra, uh, rowing across the Atlantic ocean, it's all mental. Um, you know, you gotta have some sort of physical, ability, but you know, a lot of it's mind power. So I, I think you're going to do just fine based on everything that I read about you. You're a pretty phenomenal person and, and, and a really good athlete. So I wish you the best in, in that challenge. And, uh, thank we'll you. have to keep track of you on that. Well, anyways, I just wanted to, um, thank you, Ben so much for coming on our show today and sharing your stories with us and, uh, your, your accomplishments and, uh, your life a little. Bit. It's it's been very exciting uh, to to have this opportunity to talk to you.
2: Thanks, it's been a pleasure.
0: And there you have it. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Ben and was so impressed that he raised $11,000 for Racing Welfare, the charity that supports the workforce of the British horse racing and thoroughbred breeding industry when he ran a London Marathon with a tumble dryer on his back. That is giving back. No pun intended. Anyways, I wish Ben the best and please go to the show notes at feelgoodrunning.com to find pictures and links to become more familiar with Ben and we wish him the best in the row of the Atlantic challenge that you can connect with Ben at blowsrose.uk. and please to be connected with Feel Good Running go to feelgoodrunning.com and get on our email list. I absolutely promise not to pound you with emails and when I do send them I will only give you good information and of course a nice rating, five stars, on iTunes will help build and grow the show. You are Are my community and feel good running is all about you, and I always want to keep that commitment to you. So, anything you can do to help to grow the show by letting your friends know, giving us a good rating, would certainly be appreciated. So, thank you for listening and all your support.
1: Here is a running quote to keep you inspired and feeling good.
0: And now it's time for this episode's motivational running quote. And it's absolutely perfect for the beginning of 2019. And it goes like this Serious running begins when you take running seriously. That's serious running begins when you take running seriously. No exceptions. Think about that. If you take your running seriously, it's going to give back to you tenfold. And with that, stay focused, stay healthy, stay committed, and always, always feel good about your running.
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please consider sharing this podcast with your running friends and spread the feel-good running vibe around you. Head over to feelgoodrunning.com to access all the links and resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, keep motivated, keep focused, and keep on running. It is sure to make you, well, feel good.